we're looking at this morning. So we continue to make our way through the the first book of the Psalter, Book 1, Psalms 1 to 41. We'll be in Psalm 40 this morning. And like we do every morning, we'll begin by um, reading the whole psalm together. And then we'll ask the Lord's blessing on His Word. Notice here on the superscript, this is also a psalm of David. And David writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, beginning in verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them Yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek You rejoice and be glad in You. May those who love Your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we are those this morning who can say with David, great is the Lord, and who can rejoice in your salvation, a salvation that has come to us which far surpasses anything that even David knew in his own life, for he was delivered from all of his enemies, but we have been delivered from the enemy of death itself because of the coming of His Son 
who has brought a salvation which delivers us from our sin, which delivers us from the power of death, and which will ultimately deliver us from all enemies throughout the world, in heaven or on earth. You have given to us a great Savior in Christ. And in Him, we rejoice and we delight and we desire to tell of His great salvation in the great congregation. I pray, Lord, for our time this morning that You would help us to see more of Christ. That even as David here was looking forward to a greater King to come, a greater Deliverer who would be from His own offspring, That Deliverer has come now in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that You would help us to rejoice in Him this day all the more as we consider the words that prophetically spoke of Him thousands of years ago. So be with us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as we come to the conclusion of book one of the Psalms this week and of course next week as well, looking at Psalm 40 and then 41. I want to end our time in the Psalms in much the same way as we began them, with a particular focus on Christ and how He is the ultimate fulfillment of them. We have seen before that the Psalms, though they were written by David, speak ultimately of David's greater son. David was not only a king, but we know that he was also a prophet. And he wrote prophetically not only about the events that occurred within his own life, but about the life of Christ. He says at the very end of his life in 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, he says, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His Word is on my tongue. And as the Spirit of God carried David along to speak from God, as we're told is what always happened with the prophets from The Apostle Peter in the New Testament, they they were carried along by the Spirit, speaking prophetically about things that were to come. And as this happened, as as the Spirit moved in David, he spoke ultimately of Christ. And therefore, when we began our time in the Psalms, we saw that the blessed man of the very first Psalm, Psalm One who walks not in the counsel of the wicked and nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The the blessed man refers, of course, generally to any and everyone who trusts in the Lord and who pursues righteousness. But ultimately, the blessed man of Psalm 1 is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who perfectly fulfills the law's demands of the King of Israel to be a man who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on this law day and night, who has it within his very heart. He is a son of Adam, perfect in the garden of God. He is a tree planted by streams of water and which is ever fruitful in all that He does. Psalm 1 says, He prospers. Not a single action He ever takes fails. We saw in Psalm 2 as well that the Son of God who is installed as King on Zion the holy hill of God, the the capital of His kingdom, and who is opposed by nations and peoples, and who is kissed by others. 
this not only referred to David and the establishment of his kingdom in Israel, but ultimately, it speaks of Christ, whose kingdom is from sea to sea and from shore to shore, who will put to death in judgment all of his enemies from among the nations while also gathering a people to himself from among all the nations. All throughout the Psalms, we have noted the correspondence between David and Christ and how David was but a shadow of the greater King to come and how Christ in His own person is the substance and the fulfillment of all. And how we began approaching the Psalms, seeing their fulfillment in Christ, in the same way, I would add, that the New Testament also sees the Psalms and reads the Psalms as being fulfilled in Christ. How we began approaching the Psalms is a fitting way, I think, to end our time in book one of the Psalms. And so that's what we'll do this morning and what we'll do, Lord willing, next week. Today, I want us to consider especially what this psalm teaches us about Christ. And to do so, we'll consider what the psalm is about broadly. I'm going to give sort of an overview of everything that's going on in this psalm. And then I want to focus our attention towards the middle of the psalm in verses 6 to 8. And then we'll conclude with a couple of points of application. Now, as we consider the, the broad overview of the psalm, the psalm has within it five basic parts. The first part is in verses 1 to 3, and it is a praise or thanksgiving to the Lord for His saving works. David speaks of how he had waited patiently for the Lord. Literally, it says, waiting I waited. I was waiting with all the fervency of waiting you could imagine. He had trusted in the Lord and he waited on the Lord while crying out to Him for salvation. And this, of course, could have been salvation from his sins or salvation from his political enemies. He doesn't say specifically, though it's probably the latter, as he reflects on the many attempts that King Saul made on his own life. But regardless, the situation that David was in that provoked him to cry out to the Lord was an utterly desperate one. He describes it as he describes it as being in a, in a pit of destruction and in a miry bog. He was like Joseph when his brothers tossed him into the pit, intending him to leave, to, to leave him for dead. Not too long ago, I think it was probably, probably a couple of months back now, we... Um, uh, Leah and I and the, the kids went to a, a lake not too far away from here, Shanty Hollow, I think was, was, was the name of it, and subsequently we were warned, you shouldn't have gone there, but anyways, we, we went there, and um, much of the lake had, had dried up, um, and we wanted to kind of walk around the, the edge of it, and so me and the kids go down, and Leah was doing something, I, I can't remember what she was doing, but we, we left her, and she was going to catch up, so we go around, because I was looking down, and there was just there was mud everywhere. So we walk around, we avoid the mud. and Sure enough, we, we turn around about five minutes later and Leah's just walking in the middle of it. <laughs> and, and her legs are about halfway down into the mud. And <laughs> by the time she gets there, she realizes she can't escape <laughs> without getting completely soaked in the mud. So sure enough, she tries to walk back and it was a disaster, right? Well, once you sink in the mud... There's no escape. And uh, effectively, this is what David is describing uh, of his own experiences, his, his own desperate situation. He, he is in a pit. 
He's in a miry bog and everywhere he goes is just more mud, more disaster. And yet he says that it was God who eventually drew him up and placed his feet secure on a rock. It was God who established his steps. God saved him from destruction. He saved him from his enemies. And so he sings praises to God. And he says that many more will likewise see and fear and trust in the Lord. Many more will know this kind of saving work from God and will join with Him in praising the Lord. They will know the very same Lord in the very same way that David knew Him as the God who hears their cries. Which leads to the second part of the psalm in verses 4-5 to where David speaks of the blessedness that comes to any man who trusts in the Lord and of his resolve to tell others of God's saving works. The point is that anyone who trusts in the Lord will know the Lord as David knew the Lord. The Lord was David's Savior. And for the believer, the Lord is also His Savior. And when someone has come to know the Lord as their Savior and has trusted in Him, they are compelled to speak of Him. That God has done wonderful deeds for them. And and if that has happened, how could you keep your mouth shut about it? For David's part, he says, I will proclaim and tell of them. I will proclaim of God's wonderful deeds, and yet they are more than can be told. And is this not to be the heart of every single Christian man or woman? If you have come to know the Lord, if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, if you have known yourself to be a great sinner who was sinking in a great miry bog, a cesspool of sin, and Christ through His Gospel and through His Word has saved you from that bondage of sin, how could you ever keep your mouth closed about it? You're compelled. The the heart calls you, summons you to speak of the glories of Christ to others. Surely, as all Christians who have come before, you could say, if you know the Lord, that you have a testimony of His goodness to you. You can bear witness to the glory of Christ and His saving works. Right? You may not be the finest speaker. You may not be the most articulate or the most clever with your words, but in the simplest way, one who has trusted in the Lord can say, should be able to say, I was utterly lost bound within a pit, unable to escape the the death of sin that encompassed me. And yet in the Lord's grace, the Word came to me. I was called to mind. I remembered the Gospel. I heard the Gospel. The Lord convicted me of my sin. And I repented and trusted in the Lord, and He saved me. And praise be to God for that. At every single Christian, friends, in the most simplest way, should be able to say that most simplest of things. If you had been 2,000 years ago in the company of Peter as he was preaching on the day of Pentecost, and you heard the Gospel proclaimed, and like the multitudes who were there, you were cut to the heart. 
realizing that you had contributed to the crucifixion of the Son of God, to, to the King you had claimed to be hoping in. And you had heard the Word and you were cut to the heart and you had repented. Months later, a year later, two years later, five years later, if someone were to ask you, do you know the Lord? You would be able to say, absolutely. Why? Because I heard the Gospel. Before this day, when the Apostle Peter preached, I thought I knew the Lord. I really did. I thought I knew the Scriptures. I thought I trusted in the King. But I cheered it on when He was crucified. And when I heard the Gospel, I was truly cut to the heart. And I repented. And I cried out, what must I do to be saved? And I heard the sweet words of the Apostle Peter. Repent. Repent. Trust in the Lord. Be baptized. Receive the forgiveness of sins. And the promise is for you and for your children after you. And I began walking with the Lord from that day on. All the people of God should be able to say something as simple as that because it's something you've experienced. You know it. And this is the case with David. Not only does he say, I will proclaim God's wondrous works, but so also will others who know his salvation. Which leads into the third part of the psalm in verses 6 to 8, which we'll look at a little bit closer in a moment. David speaks here of his whole life, of all of who he is being obedient to God and delighting to do his will, right? He's not, he's not obedient just out of a sense of begrudging duty. He doesn't care for the law of God. He's just doing it even though his heart's not into, into it. No, he loves. He loves God. And he loves his word and he loves his law. So the whole of his very being is given over to it. And in the fourth part, in verses 9 to 10, he returns to the theme of telling of the Lord's goodness to others. He, he bears witness in the great congregation. He bears witness in the assembly of all God's people in the temple. He, he speaks of the Lord's faithfulness and salvation to them because he has known personally of the Lord's faithfulness and salvation. And this then leads to the final section of the psalm where we find more prayers and petitions being offered. It's as if in this section, on the basis of God's past acts of faithfulness and saving works, David prays to the Lord to act on his behalf again and again and again. We might think of it similarly to how we as believers continually pray to the Lord for the forgiveness of our sins. We know, we know because the Gospel tells us so, that Christ, because of His work, has justified us freely. And all of our sins are indeed forgiven. God has gloriously freed us from the bondage of sin. But we know that throughout the course of our lives, we still sin. And we still stumble in many ways. We also know that we have an advocate before the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so we pray to Him for forgiveness. Lord, You have forgiven me before. Forgive me again now on the basis of Your faithfulness. Not on the basis of my righteousness, but on the basis of who you are as a gracious and merciful God. And David here prays similarly that the Lord's mercy not be removed from him and that he be preserved. He speaks of his iniquities overtaking him and his need for God to deliver him. And he concludes the psalm with confident assurance that the God who has saved him before will save him indeed to the uttermost. As for me, he says, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay 
oh my God. So this is a, a broad overview of the psalm. We have answered prayers. We have praise. We have resolves to obedience. We have trust and the assurance of salvation. But as I said earlier, I want to focus our attention this morning especially towards the very middle of the psalm. Because this is a section in the psalm that is directly applied in the New Testament to Christ as being fulfilled in Him. If you look at me again at verses 6-8, to David makes some interesting remarks that are worth unpacking. He says, beginning in verse 6, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Now, now there's a lot that's going on here, so we need to unpack this. One of the things that's worth noting is that this is a statement here that echoes a point which was made by the prophet Samuel to King Saul, the failed king, whom David eventually replaces. You'll remember, perhaps, from our Old Testament reading that we read from earlier, that an occasion arose in Saul's kingship when he was commanded by the Lord to devote, to devote the Amalekites to utter and complete destruction as a judgment against them for all of their sin, for all of their idolatry, and for their wars against Israel. The Lord placed the Amalekites under a divine ban. They were like, very much, they were like Sodom and Gomorrah in his eyes. Only unlike Sodom and Gomorrah, where you have two angels who were the instruments that God uses to wipe out everything in those cities, with the Amalekites, it was going to be Saul and his army who would execute God's divine judgments. This often happens in the Old Testament, right? Sometimes God carries out judgments by His own miraculous power, right? As in the case, for example, of Noah's flood or the plagues that were sent against Egypt in the Exodus. Sometimes He wields nations by His providential power, as in the case when He wielded the Assyrian Empire against the southern kingdom of Judah as a discipline against them. And sometimes he commanded his kings and his people to carry out his judgments on the earth. And lest we think, friends, that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different from the God of the New, which is an ancient heresy called Marcionism, and which many people still embrace today. Perhaps you've heard before of red-letter Christians, right? The only thing that matters and the only thing that we should be paying attention to are the, the words of Jesus in the Gospels and nothing more. That's heresy. Damnable heresy. Unless we think that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New, this is, of course, also what will happen ultimately in the final judgment. When Jesus returns in all of His glory and with the host of heaven to bring judgment against all sin and evil, the world will be judged just as Sodom and Gomorrah was judged just now on a global, universal scale. And it will be carried out by Christ and His heavenly host. But in this case, Saul was commanded to be the instrument of God's judgment. 
and to devote the Amalekites completely to destruction. There was not to be left among them a single person nor a single animal. Everything that had the breath of life in it was to be wiped out. But when Saul made war against the Amalekites, he only partially obeyed. He did not represent the Lord on high completely. He killed most all of the people, but he spared the king. And he kept all of the animals for himself and for his army as the spoils of war and ultimately to be offered as sacrifices to the Lord. And in that action, he convinced himself that he had obeyed because he had intended in his mind to honor the Lord by, by offering these as sacrifices. He believed that he would carry out the Lord's commands even though he was not following them exactly. And so then the prophet Samuel confronts him about his disobedience. And he confronts him about presuming that offering sacrifices was ultimately what pleased the Lord and what the Lord desired most. And in that confrontation, he said to Saul, you'll remember, he said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than that of the fat of rams. A constant problem that existed among the people of Israel all throughout their entire history was the belief that the ceremonies and the rituals and the sacrifices all given to them to teach them about God's holiness and character, that the belief was that these were the substance of their relationship with God. Which is to say that as long as they performed the right rituals, as long as they offered the right sacrifices, it didn't matter if they disregarded the law's demands of righteousness and of mercy and of justice and of holy living, God would still be pleased with them. They could offer sacrifices in the morning and then they could steal in the afternoon. Or they could worship idols in the afternoon and they could offer sacrifices to the Lord in the evening. And this, this problem among the people of Israel was a constant theme of prophetic denunciation against Israel all throughout their history. And the prophet Micah said in Micah 6, verse 6, he says, Shall I come before the Lord with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? And then in verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Or similarly, Amos chapter 5, verse 22 says, Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. You can offer these sacrifices all day long, Israel, but I won't accept them. Why? Because in verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And you see this even in Jesus' own day. They think by observing the Sabbath in a particular way, or they, they think that, that by doing the, the traditions of the elders, that, that this somehow makes them righteous. Even though their hearts are full of covetousness, even though they're adulterers, even though they are doing the very same things that the Gentile unbelievers are doing. 
what the Lord desired of His people and what He desired especially from the King who was the man who represented Him to everyone, to all the people. What He desired was full and complete obedience from the heart. He wanted the whole of them. He wanted their whole hearts. He wanted their whole bodies. Everything that makes a man a man. His mind, his heart, his will, his trust, his strength, his body. The Lord desires that from His people. And ultimately from His King. And here in the psalm, it is that very thing that King David says he gave to the Lord. Or to be even more accurate, this is the way the Lord created David to be. David says again in verse 6 that the Lord has given me an open ear. And the phrase here literally says, you have dug out two ears for me. And this is an idiom. This is a saying that refers to one's whole person being engaged and all of one's attention being obedient to the Lord. It's very similar, very similar, friends, to our English saying, lend me your ear. If I were to say that very thing to you, right, lend me your ear, I would not be expecting you to take out a knife and chop off your ear and give it to me. Right? It is an idiom that means... Pay attention. Give me all of yourself in this moment. I want you to pay attention to my words. And this is similar to what David is saying here. The Lord has dug out for him two ears. He has made David, he has made his king such a man that his whole heart and his life and his body belong to God. This is the purpose, in other words, for which David was raised up and called from being a shepherd boy to being the king of Israel and a covenant partner with God. He was a man. He was made to be a man after God's own heart and made to reflect God's rule on earth in Israel. His whole life was to be in service to the Lord, which is why also in verse 8, David says that he delights in God's will and that the law is within his heart. He is fully devoted to and obedient to God. And in that devotion, he offers his whole man as a sacrifice in service to God. It is David's person that the Lord accepts as a pleasing sacrifice, not the blood of bulls and goats and sheep and rams. It is David. It is the King whom the Lord desires. Now, interestingly, in some Greek translations of this psalm and of this verse, the ancient translators sought to capture this idea, this this saying, this idiom that's being used of the whole person or the whole man being devoted to God by translating verse 6 like this. Instead of, you have dug out for me two ears, it says, but a body you have prepared for me. And this is how actually the book of Hebrews quotes this psalm. But the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 5 to 7 is also interpreting this psalm in light of its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. David was but a partial fulfillment. He was still himself a man with many sins, many falls, many inadequacies. He was still a man who would continue offering sacrifices according to the law. Because under the Old Covenant, that sacrificial system was still
still required to maintain a covenant relationship with God. This is what was still needed for a man like David to make atonement for his sins. But Christ is, of course, the truest and in the most complete sense, one who could offer up his whole person, his whole body in full, complete obedience to God. And unlike David's, the offering up of Christ's body would be an offering that would be complete and perfect. There were no blemishes in His offering. There were no sins that tainted His offering. There is no no iniquity in His person. There's no evil in His heart. There's not a taint of fallenness within His nature. He was the perfect King in every sense of the word. Perfectly obedient unto death, and the perfect representative of God on earth. He is, as the author of Hebrews further says, the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is, as the Apostle Paul says, the image of the invisible God. And it was the will of God in heaven that this very perfect King would indeed offer up His whole person, His body and His Spirit as an atoning sacrifice pleasing to God. It was necessary, in fact, as Jesus says repeatedly throughout the Gospels, for the Son of Man to suffer many things and to be rejected by men and to be killed and on the third day to rise from the dead. And it was necessary for Him to die so that in the very offering up of His own body as a sacrifice, our sins, our sins might be forgiven. We might be sanctified and reconciled to God and made perfect before Him. And therefore, as the book of Hebrews explains, when Jesus takes upon His very own lips the words of this psalm, when He comes to fulfill them, the sacrifices and the burnt offerings that were offered according to the law, offered according to the Old Covenant are done away with. Why? Because a better sacrifice, because a once-for-all sacrifice has been offered in the flesh and blood of Christ. Or to put it another way, the constant refrain that you find in this psalm and in 1 Samuel, and among the prophets, the constant refrain about the inadequacy of the sacrificial system, the inadequacy of the blood of bulls and goats and rams that were offered under the Old Covenant, this constant repetition of reminders that this is not sufficient, it speaks to us. And it speaks to us about their eventual end. About the fact that they were only temporary. Or, if I can keep your attention for a moment, to switch gears a little bit and to use a similar analogy, a similar example, a similar kind of argument that's made throughout the book of Hebrews. In Psalm 110, David prophesies about the coming messianic king. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He is speaking prophetically about his Lord, his king who was to come and who was to rule over all. 
And in the context of that psalm, he also says that this very king will be made a priest forever by God. However, this king will not be a Levitical priest. He can't be a Levitical priest because if he's going to be king, he comes from the tribe of Judah. But the king is going to be made a priest forever, God says in the psalm, after the order of Melchizedek. Without getting into all the details about who Melchizedek was from the book of Genesis, the point, the point that is implied in the psalm is that eventually the Levitical priesthood is going to come to an end because a greater priest who can serve as priest forever will come. What had to happen? Right? If, you, if you think with me back, we put on our Old Testament hats for a moment. What happened among the Levites when one of them was made the great high priest? He serves for a period of time. And then he retires. Or then he dies. He cannot stay a priest forever. There is an inadequacy with his priesthood. But when the psalm prophesies that this future king will come and this king will serve as priest forever, what is implied in that is the eventual end of the, of the Levitical priesthood. And it will come to an end when the royal priest who is the Christ of God comes into the world. And that's the same kind of point that the author of Hebrews is making about Christ from this psalm. In some respects, in some respects, it is a complex point that is being made because it assumes a lot of Old Testament background. It assumes the theology of the Old Testament in order to make the point. But in another, in, an, in another respect, friends, it is actually quite simple. The point is this. When Christ offers up His own body as a sacrifice to God for sins, and when He does so in obedience to God, he not only fulfills what the sacrifices ultimately pointed to, but He also does away with them altogether. They're no longer needed. He ushers in a new and a better covenant. A better one than the old because a new and better sacrifice has been offered. Okay. So what do we make of all this? What do we do with this, this argument that's being made about Christ from Hebrews and from Psalm 40? We've seen how David, right, a man who, who deeply trusted in the Lord, says that the Lord's delight is not ultimately in the performance of rituals but in the giving of one's whole self to God. We have seen how God made David to be such a man as this, to represent him as king and to have God's law in his heart. And we have seen how Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of this, being the one who perfectly obeys the Lord and offers his life as a perfect sacrifice and who ushers in a new and better covenant. So what are we to do with these truths? Well, let me conclude with two brief points of application. Number one, you must understand and believe that the only way to God is through Christ. He is the perfect sacrifice that you and I need for our sins. 
When Christ died on the cross, He died as an atoning sacrifice for sinners so that the perfect righteousness that we need in order to stand perfect before God and of which we do not have within ourselves, that perfect righteousness can be given to us as a gift and our sins can be forgiven through Him. His death has introduced into the world the long-ago promised new covenant. It is a covenant that was promised through the prophet Jeremiah, through the prophet Ezekiel, and is ultimately fulfilled in Him. And in that covenant, God promised that those who were covenanted with Him would have all of their sins forgiven. They would be given His Spirit. They would be given a new heart. They would be given new affections that love the things of God. And they would be His people. And He would be their God. That is what God extends through Christ to the whole world. That's His promises that He's making. That if you embrace Christ, that sin that destroys you will be forgiven. You'll be freed and you will be made new. Perhaps you find yourself at times wondering, how can I be set free from these sins? Perhaps you've never trusted in Christ before as well. And you know you are a sinner. And there's, there's a slavery to it. You can't stop. You keep doing the same things over and over. You love your sin. Maybe you even know you shouldn't love your sin, but you keep loving it. How, how does that change? Well, you can't change it yourself. You can't change your affections. You can't make your heart new. The leopard cannot change his spots, but God can. And that's the promise that He makes to everyone through Christ in the new covenant. There's something wrong with your heart. There's something wrong with your affections. You don't love God and you don't love His Word. You don't love the things of God. I have an answer for that. It's called a new heart. And it comes to you when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what He provides for us in the new covenant. And so you must trust in Him and He will secure you forever. But secondly, and we'll close with this, we have seen that what pleases the Lord is the whole person. It is not part of us. It is not just the performance of rituals. It is not a small little fraction of our lives that we give to the Lord. He desires all of us. Therefore, you must offer your whole person to Him as a living sacrifice. The Apostle Paul says in the New Testament to believers, those who've embraced Christ, now we're wondering, what should life look like now? And he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or service. There are many Many who profess Christ and yet the vast majority of their lives has no thought of Him at all. They're Sunday-only Christians. Sunday morning, perhaps, at best. I saw a very disturbing statistic the other day. I think I posted it. I'm not sure. Very disturbing. Throughout this country, the amount of people who profess to know Christ, who profess to be evangelical Christians, 
by state, how many of them, what percentage of those professing Christians at a bare minimum attend church weekly, gather together with the saints to worship the Lord? In Kentucky, it was something like 17%. In Florida, it was something like 12 or 13%. Right? Out of all of these people, Claiming to love Christ. Claiming to be a people who wish to praise Him in the great congregation. It's a fraction that have even given Him a single Sunday morning. There is nothing pleasing to the Lord about that. There is nothing that testifies in any way that a person like that knows the Lord. That is Christianity in name only. And that is the kind of thing, friends, and hear my heart on this when I say it. That is the kind of thing that will get you into a damnable position of standing before the Lord on the day of judgment and saying, Lord, Lord, did I not do many good works in your name? And people say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. There are many who only give a bare fraction of their lives to the Lord. They are very much so like the Pharisees who honored the Lord with their lips while their hearts were far from Him. But I ask, what good is this to the Lord? This is no different than a husband or a wife who professes love for one another in public while in the home they are either a terror or altogether absent. The, the, the love that is being stated and proclaimed as, as being there is clearly not when the whole heart and the whole person is not engaged but someone who knows Christ friends will make their whole lives about him when they think about their families they're going to be thinking what does the scriptures teach me about my family how do I raise my family how do I lead my family well when they think about their their work their occupation the kinds of occupations they will choose they are thinking, can I please the Lord in this? Will I be able to walk faithfully with my God? They are thinking through, if this place of business calls me to denounce Christ either openly or implicitly in living in ways that are contrary to His will, am I prepared to sacrifice my job in favor of Christ? They're thinking about their whole lives consecrated to him they're in the word they want to know more of the word because the word shows them more of christ everything every aspect of their life is given to him not out of drudgery but because they love him they're married to him you've been in covenant with him you've been united to him you're part of the body of christ you are the bride and he is the bridegroom. So as the bride, you give your whole self to the groom. And so friends, I exhort you this morning to give everything to him. He has given his whole person to you. He gave his life, his very own blood, to ransom you from your sins. And so as a living sacrifice, you give your life to him. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we ask that you would guard us, guard our hearts from wandering into sin, guard us from being Christians in name only, and make us a people who with zeal and with a fervent love for the Lord, 
give the entirety of our lives to him because he has given his life for us. Free us, we pray, from any worldliness and from any sin that clings to us and make us holy that we might walk in a manner that is pleasing to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.